And so, after this long journey together, that light at the end of the tunnel is getting brighter. We've had three successive weeks of good news on COVID vaccine. And now we're opening up just a little for Christmas. It is the season to be jolly, but it is also the season to be jolly careful. the family for Christmas, but have a walk instead of dinner. COVID-positive patients discharged from hospital to care homes. And Scotland proudly leads the world in ending period poverty. From Caledonia Media, I'm Charles Fletcher with Scotland's favourite political show, The Week in Holyrood. This three-household bubble is a fixed uh, bubble for that five-day period. You can't see two households one day and another two households the next day. So it's allowing a household to come together with two other households across that five-day window of opportunity. But if you only want to meet on one day or not at all, then we're not saying people have to feel the pressure to do this. The virus is not going to be taking Christmas off. So although we want to give a little bit of flexibility for Christmas, we are still urging people to be very cautious um, and to use this flexibility responsibly and only if you think it is necessary. Martin Va, Fiskama. So here it is. Merry Christmas. Scotland and the UK are opening up for five days over the festive season. It's an opportunity for families and friends to get together. But hang on. The coronavirus is clever, but it isn't smart enough to take a holiday. We're still in the midst of the pandemic, and while restrictions are being eased on travel and gatherings for five days in December, we're all being asked to consider if we really, really need to meet this year. I'm afraid it's as stark as that. There's opportunity to see our loved ones, perhaps for the first time since March. Scotland's First Minister Nicola Sturgeon says we may be in the last period of the pandemic and we can't afford to slip up now. The First Minister suggests just because something can be done doesn't mean it should be done. I have tried to engage with the public every single day during the pandemic and I've tried not to sugarcoat any of this um, and that at times has no doubt made me sound like uh, the purveyor of doom and gloom but I've, I've tried to be straight with people. So I've never stood here and said it will be all over by X date um, and then had to sort of change that when it turned out not to be the case. Um, So, you know, I I cannot, I don't have a crystal ball. I cannot stand here and say, here's a date next year uh, when this will all be over. It may be that we are living with the the remnants and the tail of this pandemic for for a period. I, I can't say that with any certainty and nor can I rule that out with any certainty but since the good news on vaccine I am much much more optimistic than I've been at any stage in this that by around the spring of next year assuming all of the positive news on vaccines translates over the next few weeks into licenses and supply as uh, as we're predicting then I am much more optimistic that by around the spring we will be well on our way to a greater degree of normality, that we will be able to start enjoying the things in life that we we all like to take for granted. Now, I can't, as I say, put a specific date on that. I can't say that by such and such a date, it will be 70% or 80% or 90% normality or maybe a bit lower than that. There There are uncertainties in there, but I am absolutely 
uh, much, much more cheered and optimistic and confident that that's the kind of uh, medium-term horizon that we are now looking at because of all the positive news we've heard. Um, but for as long as we're in this, we'll try to be frank with people about the uh, what the... The scenarios are what, what we think might or might not happen, but also as part of that, be really frank about the inherent uncertainties that are in all of this. And, and right now, uh, there's still a lot we don't know about the next few months, as well as much more that we can now confidently predict. So I, I feel, you know, I stand here and I feel very anxious about the winter period. I feel anxious about Christmas, as everybody does. I think the winter is going to be tough um, and all of us can act in a way to try to make it a bit less tough than it would otherwise be. But I'm not going to pretend that the next two or three months are not going to be difficult. But I feel much, much more confident now that the period after that may well be a lot easier and that we, uh, while we're talking about Christmas right now, by the time we get to talk about Easter, we may not have these same anxieties to the same extent about families coming together. So that's you know, just something for all of us to keep hold of at the moment. Um, what I'd ask people to remember here is that I think you hear from me right now uh, that if you don't need to travel and see other people, I really would prefer you didn't do it. So I'm not trying to say to people, ah, Christmas will be fine, on you go, enjoy yourselves. I hope people find ways of enjoying themselves. But, but what I'm saying is, please don't travel. Please don't meet up with other households if you can avoid it. So if there was some big scary model that I could put in front of people to try and make it more likely they'd follow that advice, I wouldn't be deliberately hiding it from you. Um, but there's a lot of real uh, uncertainties and, and imponderables around trying to do that. So what we're trying to do is just say to people, there is a risk. It's hard to quantify it because we all know the different assumptions that you would have to make. But there is a risk, which is why we're trying to persuade you to operate in a way that minimises that risk. At the daily briefing, the First Minister was asked for advice on Christmas shopping and whether we should take our own knives and forks and plates if and when we go to relatives for the big day. There is a limit to the amount of advice we can give people. And I say that as a, a political government leader who stood here over the past almost a year now and given people the kind of advice I never imagined I would ever have to do. But even in that context, there is a limit. And trying to tell people what they can and can't buy loved ones for Christmas probably takes us over that. Um, so what I'm, I'm about to say is, is not actually from a public health perspective. I'll leave that to Jason. What I'm about to say is actually from an economic perspective, You know, particularly now when we've got non-essential retail closed in large parts of the country. Maybe this year you should think about buying you know, a gift voucher for a loved one so that in the new year as we're trying to kickstart retail again, you give a boost to the economy um, and although you're, you're paying for that now, so you're helping right now and you're allowing a loved one to get uh, the benefit of that later in the year. So, so maybe think about shop local online, albeit at the moment in some parts of the country, but shop local to help local businesses. So I would encourage people, not just from the public health perspective, but from the economic perspective, to think about how our Christmas shopping choices might actually help the high street and help uh, retail and the economy more generally. Um, and on taking your own cutlery and, and plates and such like, obviously we'll, we'll try to fill in as much detail as we can in the guidance we publish tomorrow. But And, you know, again, this is in the realms of, am I actually standing here saying this kind of stuff? But that's the, that's the reality we're living in just now. 
yes, if you are seeing other people over that five-day window for Christmas, then yes, think about things that you wouldn't normally think about. You know, think about maybe uh, taking things yourself that you would normally just use in somebody else's house. Make sure you're cleaning things. Make sure, even although it's in the depth of December, you've got windows open so there's good ventilation. Don't forget to wash your hands. Just keep a bit of physical distance, which we know in people's own houses is more difficult. But even coming together in these very tight limits that we're setting, and remembering these are outer limits, it can't be a normal experience. It shouldn't be a normal experience if you're trying your hardest to protect those around you. Right, Jason, what is your Christmas shopping advice? I think we're going to be doing this for weeks. So... The, the virus spreads from person to person and from surface to surface. It likes shinier surfaces better than rough surfaces. It likes glass, plastic, worktops. It also quite likes shared utensils, you could imagine. But it doesn't like wrapping paper, cards, envelopes, post. It dies very quickly on rougher surfaces such as that. So you shouldn't worry about Christmas presents in any real deep way. But you should have hand sanitizer in the room where the Christmas gifts are, like, like you should have anyway. And lots of people have had birthday celebrations, often very restricted, often outdoors. I have with my family. So I would expect you to wash your hands uh, before and after that activity, just like you would uh, in other activities that you're doing in this period. I think if you're eating together... That's going to look a little bit different than last Christmas, and I hope from next Christmas. So I wouldn't have a big bowl of roast potatoes with one spoon in it that all six, seven, eight people share. So that should probably be served somewhere else and then served on the plate. That kind of minute guidance is not going to be written down by the government. We're not going to tell you exactly how you should serve your roast potatoes. But if you think about the spread of the virus, and remember... Every single person who catches this virus gets surprised when they catch it. Every single person. So it could be in the room. So you just have to think about the distancing, the surfaces, the stuff you're touching. But please don't worry about your Christmas presents. A Fife MSP is demanding COVID-positive patients will no longer be discharged from hospitals to care homes. Alec Rowley, Labour, Mid-Scotland and Fife, says patients must have two negative tests before being transferred. The Scottish Government says it's a matter for clinicians to decide. Neil Findlay, Labour West Lothian, wants clarity and action. To ask the Scottish Government for what reason it is allowing the discharge of COVID-19 positive hospital patients to care homes. Secretary Jean Freeman. COVID-19 positive patients are not routinely being discharged to care homes in a very small number of exceptional cases and only where a clinician has judged that this is in the best interest for the care of their patient. Discharge without a negative test can only be undertaken where steps including clinical risk assessment are undertaken. The Scottish Government's guidance issued in May states, and I quote, Residents being admitted to a care home should have a negative test before admission unless it is in the clinical interest of the person to be moved and then only after a full risk assessment. The policy has not changed. The Public Health Scotland guidance issued in October mirrors this, stating, and I quote, the presumption should be that residents being admitted to a care home should have a consented PCR COVID test before or on admission unless it is in the clinical interest of the person to be moved and a risk assessment can support this, local health protection teams can advise in more complex situations. Neil Finley. Officer, 
Uh, last Tuesday, my constituent was admitted to hospital from her care home. She tested positive for COVID on Wednesday and was discharged back to the care home on Thursday. When I raised this at FMQs and asked if we were back to discharging COVID-positive patients to care home, homes, Nicola Sturgeon was emphatic in her answer, saying, and I quote, with respect, I do not accept that. There is no such policy and there will not be one. In a previous parliamentary answer to Mills Briggs about care home discharge, the Cabinet Secretary said, no one should be discharged from hospital, to, hospital who has a positive test for COVID-19. If they are in hospital, they should remain there and be treated for the virus. Another emphatic answer with no caveats. Since Thursday, I have spoken to families, care staff and a care home manager from another establishment. All have told me of cases of COVID-positive hospital discharges to care homes taking place that are not end-of-life cases and where no or a very limited risk assessment has been carried out. I have also been advised by care home staff that they are being repeatedly asked to accept COVID-positive patients with no negative test and told just to isolate them for 14 days instead. So did the First Minister mislead Parliament on Thursday or did she not know what her own government guidance was? Cabinet Secretary. So neither the First Minister nor I have misled Parliament. The guidance has been clear. I've read it out, the relevant section from May, the guidance issued in May, and the Public Health Scotland guidance issued in October, both of which include that exception in exceptional circumstances based on clinical judgment. And as I've said here in this chamber before, and I will repeat, I think it is entirely the right position to have in this instance, as in other instances of medical care, that we allow doctors on the basis of their uh, clinical knowledge of the patient, their experience, their expertise, their many years of training to exercise clinical judgment. And I do not think it would be right for a politician, this politician or any politician of any stripe, to take away that capacity of clinicians to exercise clinical judgment. The guidance has been clear, and there is also uh, detailed guidance uh, with, re with respect to those exceptional circumstances, which say, and, and I will uh, uh, give it in detail, clinicians will consult the patient, if possible, their family and care home, on what is in the patient's clinical interests. A full risk assessment would be carried out on any transfer. Appropriate mitigation actions and support will be put in place. A 14-day period of isolation must be completed in all circumstances. The risk assessment that is carried out would consider specifically whether the care home was able to support this isolation period. That's a 14-day isolation period. A care plan for the completion of the isolation period will also be required. All of that is clear. It's clear in the guidance. And what we really need to understand is that nothing has changed since we introduced the requirements for testing before uh, patients or residents were admitted to care homes, be it from hospital or be it from the community. But it is not the role of ministers, nor should it be, to take individual discharge decisions. That is entirely properly the role of uh, doctors and others in the clinical team. Well, it appears that across the country these guidelines are being repeatedly flouted. But can I ask this? What about the rights of the other care home residents, Cabinet Secretary? Because the guidance says visiting should only take place when care homes are established and declared free of COVID cases by local health protection teams 28 days from the last 
positive test. The Cabinet Secretary knows only too well of the anguish of residents and their families who cannot be visited and cannot see their loved ones. And yet this guidance builds in further isolation and entrenches isolation from family. Because if you put someone back into the home who's COVID positive, there is then a 28-day period when they have no visitors. So what about the rights of the existing care home residents and their families to have connection and see each other? Cabinet Secretary. Let me say uh, two things in response to that. If Mr uh, Finlay has evidence that the uh, guidelines and the protocol that I have just read out in summary is being flouted, then I would want to have that evidence uh, and investigate those matters, as we did in the case of the constituent that he raised at First Minister's questions, and he will have had the response from me on that, explaining what happened in that situation. In terms of the 28-day period, he is correct. Residents and uh, care home relatives have raised this with me. Indeed, this morning, so too, did colleagues who are chief officers of health and social care partnerships raise that issue with me. And I'm happy to inform the Chamber that our chief medical officer is leading a discussion with clinicians to see if it is possible and safely, given what we know in the developing knowledge on the epidemiology of this virus, whether it is possible to safely reduce that uh, length of time. Uh, depending on uh, that advice, then I will act, but I will not act in defiance of clinical advice. And Donald Cameron. <clears throat> Thank you. A few weeks ago, this Parliament voted for the Scottish Government to hold a public inquiry into care home deaths at once. Rather than delay things further by waiting to hear back from other UK nations, will the Cabinet Secretary now respect the will of Parliament and commit this Government to holding its own public inquiry immediately? Cabinet Secretary. I would never disrespect the will of this Parliament, as I think I've explained uh, to individual members. Uh, I have sought to see if it is possible to have a public inquiry that is uh, at least in part rests on four nations. I think that uh, makes a great deal of sense. I regret I've not had a response. Uh, so we will now uh, begin the steps, but members should not be under any illusion that it is a quick exercise to set up a public inquiry. There are significant steps that need to be undertaken that involve the Lord President, the Lord Advocate and others, and we will undertake those steps as we continue to deliver a vaccine programme, an enhanced testing programme, support our NHS and social care to deal with the level of virus prevalence and cases that threaten our citizens across Scotland every single day. Health Secretary Jean Freeman continues to put in a shift this week. She's announced an increased rollout of coronavirus testing for care home staff and care workers. It comes as the Scottish Government is preparing its programme of getting COVID vaccines delivered nationwide. Our testing capability now enables us to work with local partners to trial whole community testing in exactly those areas where transmission has stayed stubbornly high. Next week, we will be deploying up to six additional mobile testing units and 20,000 home test kits to support work in five local authority areas, Glasgow, Renfrewshire, East and South Ayrshire and Clackmannanshire. We will also set up an asymptomatic test site using lateral flow testing in Johnston in Renfrewshire, which has one of the highest new cases per 100,000 of any local authority in Scotland. This centre will have capacity to test up to 12,000 people over the course of the week. 
and we are actively planning targeted deployment for early January, including further asymptomatic test sites. In deploying mobile units, home test kits and trialling the asymptomatic test site, we will work closely with local communities to harness their expertise to encourage high participation. Presiding officer, testing is undeniably important, but it is just one layer of protection. Many layers are needed to fight this virus. Our increased capability now to test more people more often is potentially powerful as we navigate our way through the coming months as safely as we can and alongside our nationwide vaccination programme. With the plans I have set out in this chamber today, we will move to testing hundreds of thousands of people without symptoms to actively find the virus and with the continuing cooperation of people across Scotland, prevent and break down chains of transmission before COVID-19 can cause the harm we know it is capable of. Shadow Health Secretary Donald Cameron says different rules on testing in care homes across Scotland are causing anxieties for families. We strongly welcome the further clarification provided on the expanded testing programme and it's right that these actions are rolled out swiftly so we continue to continue our efforts in suppressing the virus and both the positive news about vaccines in recent weeks needs to be complemented by a robust and accurate testing regime both are critical tools. Can I return to the issue of testing and social care, both in care homes and for home care, given, uh, as she acknowledges, the very difficult and emotional issues it raises, especially at this time of year, for relatives and friends? Can the Cabinet Secretary clarify whether designated visitor testing will be mandatory in all instances? And can she outline what support will be given to care homes to implement these new policies given the importance of a uniform approach across Scotland and the fact that one of the hardest issues for relatives is dealing with differing rules applying in differing care homes. Dean Freeman. Uh, I thank Mr Cameron. It's a very important question. In terms of care homes and whether or not it will be mandatory, um, as Mr Cameron knows, we, we don't make testing mandatory. It's not mandatory for our NHS staff. Um, and, and there's a very straightforward reason for that. We want people to uh, voluntarily undertake the testing, particularly the lateral flow testing, because it is much more straightforward um, and much less uh, intrusive and difficult for them because they understand the importance and the rationale. So at this point, we have no uh, intention to make it mandatory uh, for care home visiting. Uh, we need to continue our discussions with care home providers through Scottish Care uh, to ensure that care home providers feel, as they have asked for, they feel that testing gives them greater confidence to open up uh, vis more visiting for their residents. Um, in terms of support for care homes, there will be support for all care homes. The Pathfinder approach allows us to work directly with care homes, provide the training, make sure they understand uh, how the lateral flow devices work, make sure we get the logistics of kit delivery uh, accurate and smooth, um, and then use their experience with us to roll that out to their colleagues who are uh, running uh, the, the additional care homes. So training and support will be provided to all care homes as lateral flow uh, devices are rolled out to them. And, of course, PCR is done through our NHS. For Labour, Monica Lennon is concerned about the length of time it's taking to roll out testing. Can I ask why it's taken so long to roll the testing out? And on the, the welcome um, update on um, community, uh, whole community testing, 
Can I ask, given the high number of cases in Lanarkshire and given our level four status, why hasn't Lanarkshire been selected for whole community testing and what criteria is being used? Jean Freeman. Uh, so, uh, a number of things. Um, I don't think I promise a lot and then don't deliver. The reason why it, you're getting this update today and not at any other point when it would have been entirely possible to make an announcement, it would have been an announcement with no substance. Today we have a detailed delivery plan. Today I'm confident the dates I'm giving are the dates that we will deliver on. I think that the public in Scotland, and more importantly, those who need that testing, that that is the respect that they deserve. In terms of uh, NHS staff, all patient-facing NHS staff, as I have described, uh, will have, uh, be undergoing routine weekly testing by the end of December. So that's in a month's time. The problem with home care staff, it's not a problem, but it is the nature of the job, is that they, they don't conveniently gather in one place on a regular basis uh, before they go and do their job. Uh, and so we need to work out the logistics of this. If we can deliver it before March, then we will do that because I completely recognise the vitally important work they do um, and the fact that they will very often uh, visit five, possibly more homes in any one day. Uh, and they do have arrangements for PPE. But the other point about home care staff is, I think First Minister uh, explained it yesterday in terms of the authorization for non-clinical use of the lateral flow test. The lateral flow test is the best to use in these circumstances because of the speed of the result. But at the moment, we don't, there isn't yet across the UK authorization for anyone who isn't clinical to use that test. So we can uh, make sure that it is used in care homes where, where we have nursing staff. We can obviously use it with our NHS staff, with all those admissions to hospital. Uh, home care workers are different, so to make it smooth, to make it something that is part of your shift and not something that you have to go on your day off to get, we need to get that authorisation in place to help us roll it out even further. So the two areas are the areas of complication, the nature of the job and the fact that we don't conveniently find them in a ward or in a care home, and the authorisation for widespread non-clinical use. That's the difficulty, and as I've said, uh, if we can do it quicker, we will do it quicker. But at the moment, our current estimate, based on those two issues, is that it will, starting in January, it will take us to March before we complete it. You're listening to The Week in Holyrood. I'm Charles Fletcher. And coming up in the next half hour, questions to the First Minister. And the Chancellor cuts overseas aid as part of his spending review. You remember last week the Prime Minister described devolution as a disaster. He was playing to a gallery of his Northern England Tory MPs. Well, this disaster of a parliament has been reported worldwide this week from Euronews to the New York Times and the Sydney Morning Herald. They've covered how Scotland has become the first country in the world to tackle period poverty with free pads and tampons. First, this report from Euronews. Parliament unanimously approved the Period Products Bill in a bid to end so-called period poverty. The term refers to those on low incomes who can't afford or access suitable products. The scheme will cost taxpayers around €27 million Euros per year. 
Monica Lennon, who's responsible for introducing the bill, says it gives women across Scotland easy and dignified access to personal hygiene products. The bill is in two parts, really. First of all, schools, colleges and universities will have to provide free period products within their campuses. And in the most part, that will be in toilets, but it could also be in other locations like in the university library or in a student association. And the other part of the period products bill is about making sure that regardless of where someone lives in Scotland, that they can access products within their community. So people who are not in school or in education. And we have some great work in Scotland already where local authorities provide free period products in libraries and gyms and leisure centres and in other community buildings. So the intention is that that work would expand into every community in Scotland. There wouldn't be a need to provide a voucher. There wouldn't be a need to, a need to provide identification. It's designed to be really easy with dignity at the heart of it and equality. So no means testing, no proof of income. And that's a principle that the whole Scottish Parliament agreed was really important. How much can the average woman expect to spend, say, every month? Well, periods are a normal part of life, but it can be quite an expensive business. During the campaign over the past four years, we met young people, young girls in education who couldn't afford the products or were too embarrassed to ask their family members to provide them with sanitary pads and, and tampons. So it can be a really stressful experience for young people in particular. And we came across young people, but also older adults too, who were having to improvise and use toilet paper, socks, rags, and, and not having um, access to enough products. They were using products for too long, which clearly um, is not good for health and wellbeing. And we also met um, mums um, mothers who were going without period products in order to provide food for their children. And more and more people were going to homeless shelters and to food banks to get support. And it was really holding people back in life. So the Scottish Parliament's been on quite a journey. We didn't all agree initially. But tonight, the full Scottish Parliament has agreed from the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, to all the other parties. And I think it sends out a really strong message, I think, to other parts of, of Europe and indeed the world that if we can do it in Scotland and everyone else can do it too. We heard from her there. Let's now join the leader of the campaign, Labour's Monica Lennon, in the Chamber of the Scottish Parliament. In contrast with the vibrant supporters rally, the energised parliament and filled this public gallery just nine months ago, the heroes of this campaign are at home today, but their voices remain loud and clear that parliament should pass the Period Products Bill tonight. Periods should never be a barrier to education or push anyone into poverty. Women, girls and all people who menstruate deserve period dignity. Presiding officer, this bill is practical and progressive and I hope all MSPs will support it tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ms Lennon. Now call on Aileen Campbell, the Scottish Government. Cabinet Secretary, please. Thank you, President Officer. And it is a great privilege to be here on a day that we will commit to Scotland becoming the first country in the world to legislate to ensure that free period products are available to all who need them. 
This legislation will do much to advance equality and social justice here in Scotland and elsewhere as other countries seek to follow our path. I call on Alexander Stewart to close for Conservatives. Mr Stewart, please. Thank you, Deputy Presiding Officer. I am pleased to be able to close uh, this afternoon's debate on a very important issue uh, of the free provision of period properties for the Scottish Conservatives. And firstly, I'd like to pay tribute to Monica Lennon for her tireless campaign in raising awareness about this issue and seeking to find a positive solution. The result of the vote on motion 23328 in the name of Monica Lennon is yes, 121. There were no votes against, there were no abstentions. The motion is agreed and the Period Products Free Provision Scotland Bill is passed. The UK Chancellor Rishi Sunak says Britain's economic emergency has only just begun. In his spending review, he says Scotland's block grant will be £2.4 billion above last year's allocation. He's freezing public sector pay, apart from the NHS, and has not committed to replacing all of the EU support funding after Brexit. Overseas aid is being cut and will only be taken back up when the economy improves. Scotland's Finance Secretary Kate Forbes says his plans are a step in the dark with huge financial implications for Scotland. Here's the Chancellor. The economic impact of coronavirus and the action we've taken in response means that there has been a significant but necessary increase in our borrowing and debt. The UK is forecast to borrow a total of £394 billion this year, equivalent to 19% of GDP, the highest recorded level of borrowing in our peacetime history. The OBR forecasts the economy will contract this year by 11.3%, the largest fall in output for more than 300 years. As the restrictions are eased, they expect the economy to start recovering, growing by 5.5% next year, 6.6% in 2022, then 23 1.7% and 1.8% in the following years. Even with growth returning, our economic output is not expected to return to pre-crisis levels until the fourth quarter of 2022. And the economic damage is likely to be lasting. To protect public sector jobs at this time of crisis and ensure fairness between the public and private sectors, I'm taking three steps today. First, Taking account of the pay review body's advice, we will provide a pay rise to over a million nurses, doctors and others working in the NHS. Second, to protect jobs, pay rises in the rest of the public sector will be paused next year. But third, we will protect those on lower incomes the 2.1 million public sector workers who earn below the median wage of £24,000 will be guaranteed a pay rise of at least £250. I want to reassure the House that we will continue to protect the world's poorest, spending the equivalent 
of 0.5% of our national income on overseas aid in 2021, allocating £10 billion at this spending review. And our intention is to return to 0.7% when the fiscal situation allows. The Scottish and UK governments say they have no legal route to give further financial support to BIFAB in Fife and the Western Isles. A joint working group is being set up to look at ways to strengthen the renewable supply chain in Scotland and secure future opportunities. Now, two questions to the First Minister, and we begin with Scottish Conservative and Unionist Group Leader here at Holyrood, Ruth Davidson. Last year, the First Minister promised this Parliament that she would cooperate fully with the Salmon Inquiry. She said the inquiries will be able to request whatever material they want, and I undertake today that we will provide whatever material they request. Yet, despite losing two votes in this Parliament, the Government is refusing to hand over the legal advice it received on the matter. Key Scottish Government officials who could shed light on the affair are being blocked from giving evidence, leading the SNP convener of the committee to say that its inquiries are being obstructed. The simple question is this. Why has the First Minister broken her promise? First Minister. Um, that is not the case. The Scottish Government is cooperating and will continue to cooperate with the inquiry. Nobody has been blocked from uh, giving evidence. Um, I... I myself have uh, recused myself from the decisions in relation to this for the very good reason, I think, that uh, it is partly my conduct that the inquiry is looking at. In terms of uh, legal advice, the Deputy First Minister set this out uh, very clearly to Parliament. Uh, Of course, uh, and indeed uh, this is an issue in the context of of this inquiry, ministers have to abide with the terms of the Ministerial Code. Uh, The Ministerial Code says at uh, paragraph 2.38 that ministers must not divulge the contents of legal advice. Paragraph 2.40 recognises that in exceptional circumstances, ministers can consider uh, that the balance of interest favours disclosure. Uh, Ministers, uh, and the Deputy First Minister is leading this consideration, is considering whether that test is met. But if ministers do consider that that test is met, they must then get the prior consent of law officers. As the Deputy First Minister has set out, that process is underway and he will update uh, Parliament when that process has concluded. Ruth Davison. The blunt fact is this. The only conceivable reason that she is breaking her promise is because she has something to hide. So let's try this a different way. I'll say what the legal advice contained and the First Minister can tell me if I'm wrong. The advice received by the Scottish Government's senior counsel warned that the Scottish Government's handling of the sexual harassment allegations were deeply flawed and that the judicial review would find in favour of Alex Salmond as it duly went on to do. And this advice was proffered to the Scottish Government long before they finally collapsed their own case, running up hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of bills in the process and utterly failing the women who came forward. So tell the public, which part of that have I got wrong? First Minister. As Ruth Davidson uh, knows, uh, if I was to uh, go into the detail, I would stand here right now and I would breach the ministerial code. Uh, Perhaps perhaps Ruth Davidson wants that to be the case, uh, but I'm not going to do that. The ministerial code, and I've just narrated the ministerial code and quoted directly from it, sets out a process that ministers have to go through should uh, legal advice uh, be divulged. And and just 
to remind uh, the Chamber and uh, others watching, uh, the starting point in the Ministerial Code is that Ministers must not divulge the contents of legal advice unless certain tests are fulfilled. And we are going through a process right now of consideration of those tests. Uh, that is the right uh, and proper way to do this. Once that process has concluded, uh, the Deputy First Minister will update uh, Parliament about the outcome of it. Jameson. The cynical obfuscation that we have seen to the Committee, from the Deputy First Minister in last night's debate, and from the First Minister here today, only serves to show why this advice needs to be brought into the open. It's an argument that the First Minister once accepted herself, an argument that the whole Parliament has considered, has debated and has now voted on twice, and twice the Government has refused. So can I ask the First Minister, if the Parliament votes to release these documents a third time, is the First Minister going to again disrespect this Chamber and the people who voted for us? First Minister. It is because of the votes in Parliament that ministers are now undergoing the process set down in the Ministerial Code. If we were to take a decision uh, that didn't go through that proper process, ministers would be in breach of the Ministerial Code. And I suspect we would have uh, members of the Parliament uh, raising the concern that we were acting outside of the Ministerial Code. The Ministerial Code the starting point in it is that ministers must not divulge the contents of legal advice. Uh, that's not uh, something that is unique in Scotland. There are uh, provisions like that uh, that govern uh, many different administrations. Um, the two-stage process is that ministers have to consider uh, whether the balance of public interest favours disclosure in a particular case, and then, should they decide that, they have to get, and again I'm quoting, the prior consent of law officers. That's the process that is underway, and when that process has concluded, uh, the Deputy First Minister will update Parliament. That's the right uh, way to do this, um, and that is the process that is underway. For my part, um, I've given my own uh, written evidence to the committee. I have not yet been invited to give evidence to the committee orally. When I am so invited to give evidence, I, of course, uh, as I am bound to do, will do that. Uh, I, the Government, will cooperate fully with the inquiry, as we have already been doing. Mr Davison. Trading Officer, the sheer hypocrisy of this is overwhelming. Nicholas Sturgeon and the SNP never tire of lecturing anyone who will listen about the will of Parliament and how it should be respected, except, of course, when it doesn't suit their purpose. She says, she says that our government will cooperate with the committee. In fact, she obstructs it. She says all relevant documents will be made available, but she refuses to hand them over. She says repeatedly that the will of Parliament should be respected, but the only one disrespecting it is her. By ignoring two votes, where a majority of this chamber, the chamber we are sitting in right now, has demanded that legal advice to her government is shown to the country. During this affair, the First Minister has conveniently forgotten key information, dates, meetings and conversations. But hasn't she forgotten something far more fundamental too? First Minister. Um, the Government is acting in line with the Ministerial Code and, uh, of course, Ruth Davidson will, on any occasion where uh, she or her colleagues believe uh, that uh, government or any minister within the government has acted out with the ministerial code, of course, get up um, and demand uh, inquiries and investigations and accountability for that. That is right and proper. Uh, the government is not ignoring the votes in parliament. What the government is doing as a result of the votes in parliament is going through the process 
that the ministerial code explicitly sets out before legal advice can be divulged. If we didn't go through that process, we would be breaching the ministerial code, and I'm sure the position of Ruth Davison would suddenly go full circle and the line of attack on the government would be something completely different. The Deputy First Minister has set out the process that the government is going through. I've set it out again. I've quoted from the ministerial code. That process will be concluded, and when it is concluded, the Deputy First Minister will advise Parliament of the outcome. For Labour, Richard Leonard. The Crown Office is now leading Operation Copper, which is investigating care home deaths in Scotland. Does the First Minister believe that she and her ministers will need to be interviewed over the decisions that they made as part of this investigation? Has she made all evidence and correspondence without reservation available to this investigation? And does the First Minister consider that there was, at the very least, negligence in assuming that care homes could manage the risk of cross-infection? Uh, what evidence the Crown Office uh, seek in relation to any investigation that they are involved in um, and who the Crown Office uh, chooses to speak to in relation to any investigation they are involved in is a matter for the Crown Office and it would be completely wrong for me to uh, seek to comment on that in ways that would uh, be trying in some way to influence the outcome of this or any other investigation. Uh, on care homes, as we have uh, discussed uh, many times in the past, uh, the government acted uh, in a way that uh, was intended to protect the population and protect those in care homes as much as possible. I have never, ever stood here um, and suggested that there were not things we got wrong in the face of a new virus uh, where uh, the challenges were significant. We have uh, sought to learn as we have gone along. We have changed policy. We have changed practice uh, but our intention and our determination all along have been to take the right decisions to keep the population uh, and particularly vulnerable groups within the population as safe as possible at all times and that continues to be my daily focus as it is the daily focus of the entire government. Richard Leonard. I don't think it would prejudice the investigation to give a commitment that all evidence and all correspondence without reservation would be made available uh, but let me turn to let me turn to the substance of this, because back in April, when the scale of the tragedy in our care homes was becoming clearer, we were told that COVID-19 patients would require two negative tests before being transferred into care homes. Last week, when Neil Findlay highlighted examples of patients who tested positive for COVID being transferred to care homes now, the First Minister stated, there is no such policy and there will not be one. This week, we've been told by the Cabinet Secretary that people will only be admitted to care homes following a positive test if it was in their clinical interests and following a risk assessment. She also said that this was happening only in a very small number of exceptional cases. First Minister, how many cases is it? But I can't give that information because these are clinical decisions taken by clinicians. The policy is very clear. If somebody is in hospital uh, for a COVID-related reason, they require to have two negative tests before being discharged to a care home. If they are in hospital for uh, another reason, a known uh, COVID reason, they still require to have a negative test. Uh, but that is the policy in any situation. I have had lengthy discussions with the Chief Medical Officer and uh, clinicians about this. In any policy, uh, there are ethical reasons uh, and clinical reasons why there have to be exceptions in some circumstances. Perhaps um, if 
uh, Richard Leonard uh, doesn't want to take my word on that. Let me just share the words of the President of the Royal College of Physicians uh, and Surgeons, uh, Professor Jackie Taylor. Uh, she says uh, this, as doctors we spend much of our time weighing up risks and benefits and trying to make the best decisions that we can. Policies and guidance are of fundamental importance in clinical practice, but none can cover all eventualities. Uh, she goes on to talk about the uh, fact that this is an invasive test and whether there are uh, exceptional circumstances uh, where that test would cause distress to a frail elderly person or where consent could not be uh, obtained, then it would ethically be wrong uh, to, to carry that out. These are uh, the kind of exceptional circumstances that have to be catered for in any policy in a clinical setting. It does not change the presumption and the policy, which it is, as I have already set out. Richard Leonard. Thank you, but if the Cabinet Secretary for Health uh, describes it as a very small number, I would have thought it would make sense for the government to monitor the number of COVID-positive and untested patients being discharged to care homes. Because during this pandemic, people were discharged from hospital into residential care homes untested. Some even now are being discharged into care homes having tested COVID-19 positive. There is a police investigation into care home deaths. There is the scandal of DNR notices, hospital treatment blocked, PPE shortages, and the denial of visiting rights. And once again, we are learning daily of serious and multiple outbreaks of COVID-19 in residential care homes. In the last month, 223 of our oldest and frailest citizens have lost their lives to COVID in care homes. So we welcome yesterday's announcement that at last the government is going to introduce testing for care home visitors. But in October, the government announced testing for all home care staff, and now they will have to wait until March. In May, some six months ago, the government announced routine and regular testing for all care home staff. Yet just last week, one in five were still not being tested. So what confidence can people have, residents, families waiting to see their loved ones after months and months of separation, that this time you will move heaven on earth to honour that promise, that this time they will not be let down? There's a number of issues in there that, that, that all deserve to be uh, addressed individually, um, and let me try to do so uh, briefly. Before we leave the issue of testing uh, those who are being discharged from hospital to care homes. The policy is very clear, but as with any policy in a clinical setting, it must cater for exceptional circumstances. To complete the quote that I uh, relied on earlier on from Professor uh, Taylor when she uh, refers to the policy, but then says very clearly there are situations where this simply uh, may not be possible. Carrying out an invasive procedure might cause enormous distress and be difficult to conduct. Should this then meet, uh, mean that a patient is denied return to what is essentially their home? The other point that flows from that is that in a, a care home situation, a 14-day period of isolation must be completed in all circumstances where there is a discharge, whether or not a person has had a COVID test and whether the result is negative or not. So testing is part of the protections in place. It is not the only part of the protections in place. In terms of testing more broadly, care home workers are tested weekly. Not all care home workers will be at work every week. And 
care home workers, like everybody else, have to consent to being tested. Uh, so there, are, uh, there is a, a system of regular routine care home, testing, uh, care home worker testing in place, um, and that is working very well. In order to try to speed up that process, we are also transferring uh, the processing of the testing from the Lighthouse Laboratory Network into the NHS Scotland Network, and that is well underway. Uh, we are now moving to go beyond that uh, to test uh, designated visitors uh, to care homes, and the Health Secretary set out that that will begin um, in uh, the next month uh, before Christmas, and over the Christmas period, those who don't have access to lateral flow testing, uh, designated visitors will be offered access to PCR testing in the weeks over the Christmas period. Uh, and of course, we are uh, moving also to test regularly using uh, lateral flow technology uh, care at home workers. Uh, so as the technology develops, as we are able to introduce that new technology, one of the constraints on the position with lateral flow testing right now is that it is not yet MHRA uh, licensed for unsupervised use, which we hope will change uh, soon. But as this new technology comes, uh, becomes available, we are rolling it out and using testing more and more as part of our overall response to COVID. For the Lib Dems, Willie Rennie. Uh, we do need to change on care homes. It's been promised repeatedly for far too long, so it's got to change, and it's got to change soon. I'm also frustrated about how slow this government has been on the expansion of testing. In the spring, thousands of new residents were not tested before admission to care homes. Care home staff were not tested either at that time. Students were not tested before they arrived back on campus after the summer. And it's weeks yet, as we've just discussed before, families will be tested before they can get access to loved ones in care homes. This is just not good enough. The government's reluctance to embrace testing at the beginning has been felt now. The effects of it has been felt now. Thousands of students in Northumberland were tested. Liverpool offered testing for everyone. Slovakia tested three million people. And as a result, thousands of people were self-isolating, protecting the lives of others. And this government's response? 12,000 people in a small town in Renfrewshire. Just when is the government going to catch up on testing? First Minister. Look, it's, it's easy to always stand and say we should be doing things quicker. If I was in opposition, no doubt I'd be doing it um, as well. But, you know, Willie Rennie used the word reluctance. Um, why would I be reluctant to do things that could make a difference in the battle against COVID? Uh, but often these things are more complex than they appear. We have to roll technology out safely, make sure people are using it properly, that they're trained and supported to use it, and, and try to make sure that the use of testing, important though it is, uh, is part of a bigger approach and doesn't inadvertently perhaps undermine some of the other important messages that we're trying to get across. And that work is complex. That work uh, does unfortunately take time. I uh, frequently, I'm frustrated that things can't uh, go more quickly. But, you know, Willie Rennie, I think, is underplaying uh, some of the work that is being done um, around testing. Next week, we will start a testing programme for all students. Uh, we will continue to look at the role of testing in the student population. 
you know, he can dismiss a, a, a pilot project for mass population testing in Johnson. It's really important because it's one of the highest prevalence areas in the country right now, and that will allow us to learn a lot about the use of testing in that way to get stubbornly high uh, prevalence rates down. But the Health Secretary talked yesterday about the other work we're doing with all 11 local authorities in Level 4 and the five health boards that are involved in these areas uh, to roll out a mix of PCR and lateral flow testing across a range of different geographies. We've been looking carefully at Liverpool. The, the Liverpool pilot's got a lot of hard lessons, particularly about how you make sure you get a, a good uptake of testing offered like that. So, you know, we'll continue to do this work. We are not uh, reluctant to do anything that will help here, but we are uh, keen to get it right and do it properly because there are big things, uh, not least human health and life, that are at stake here. And that's